back to another Power Passion podcast. Uh, we're here with a special guest today. It's uh, Ali. Ali, first of all, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Um, well, uh, I'm. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, that's very kind of you. Uh, I'm coming from a research background. Um, I came to Australia in 2012, I think. So awesome. I'm quite Australia, mm -hmm. kind of. Uh, did my PhD at Curtin University and continued with um, another degree at UWI. Worked in both academia and industry yeah. relating to my field in immersive technologies yeah. in general, and then founded my own research institute, which now. That's it. I just, I just wanted to recap it for everyone uh, listening. Ali, we've been very excited to have him on because off, off camera, he's the founder and director of Wise Realities, which is a non for profit focusing on the positive, positive aspects of VR in relation to things like mental health mm -hmm. and something that's even more even risque, which is sexual health. So he's very much a passionate dude. You've also got a doctorate in philosophy, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's right. So a very experienced guy. So we're very looking forward to it. So first and foremost, how did you get into it? What was the initial moment where you thought, okay, here's the idea for wise realities and this is how I'm going to take the company? Vice um, Realities has has a story. Um, it, when I came to Australia, the idea was to do your PhD, go back home, and start this type of organization that we have. Uh, we call them knowledge-based companies, and basically is a special purpose not-for-profit. Mm -hmm which is private, it's not a public company, it's a private company, but it's recognized as a higher degree research organization, so you get MPhils and PhD students to work with you. You are also related to the government in a sense that you get a lot of um, tax cuts and uh, also seeding money from the government, and also you are related to the industry, and that the idea is to bring industry problems into the research, um, try to find solutions for them, practical solutions with the help of government and academia, then take it back to the um, industry to implement it. That was the idea. Um, I did my PhD, I decided Perth is too lovely to go back, <laughs> so I stayed in uh, Perth. Uh, when I graduated, if I want to be honest, I wasn't very happy with the politics of academia. Okay, yeah. That works. Uh, so I, I decided to go to the industry and try to continue my research in industry. Um, I, I would say I was kind of lucky as well because I was picked by the industry as research scientist to translate my PhD into a real product which I didn't have enough time to do during my PhD. I mean, that was amazing. A 100K job, everything was fine. <laughs> Getting every virtual reality headsets that I need, a team of developers and other researchers helping me. And that was very good. I was very happy. Um, and because we were engaged with the schools and education, a lot of queries came in regarding autism. Okay, yeah. What can you do for kids with autism? Right. And it kept repeating itself. And at the same time, I was doing a degree in health 
HUK's and at UWA. So I was connected to the health community and also I've seen a lot of problems with um, people with autism in education mm. system or even with other uh, kids. Yep. And that was the moment that I was hesitant if I should continue what I was doing or start doing something about this problem on hand. Mm. And at the same time, I was talking internationally in different events and I was connecting to very big names in our field, which I think wasn't very um, welcoming by the executives of the company. Oh, right. that was that was separated from the company. So very, very curious, right? Because you would think that some uh, private networking and expanding the network for any organization would be looked upon fondly by the yeah, organization. Yes, exactly. but that was different from the company. Yeah, exactly. uh, that was more on me rather than the company. And ah. came to the point that, okay, you have to choose. We welcome that PR for the company, but the company's product and vision was very different from what I had in mind. Ah. So that was the moment I, won I was given a choice that, okay, you have to decide what you want to do. Basically, I remember it happened on campus. It happened here at Curtin. I called my mentors and my supervisor from my PhD. Sure. Came here in the library, had a chat with them. I was like, this is the situation. I want to do something on more on a charitable side of things. Right. But the company is a for-profit and it's mm -hmm. understandable. And they said like, for the last seven years, you had this idea of doing this. How about doing it now? So next day I go in, I resign from my job. Okay. And I start Wise Realities as a not-for-profit um, technology company in healthcare. Very cool. Uh, and took around almost a year, near a year to set up the governance and everything with a quality enough that the Australian Charities Association recognized us as a health promotion charity. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, last week of 2018, we've been officially uh, recognized as a health promotion charity and um, took a few months to put together our first inaugural um, symposium around healthcare immersive technology wow, okay. with the chief scientist of Australia, Professor Peter Klinken, kindly opening the symposium mm -hmm. and a, an amazing lineup of speakers uh, speaking that day, which was an amazing momentum and recognition for Wise Realities and what it achieved yeah. up to then. So you've got a breadth of experience from both industry and academia. I so, yes. Yeah, yeah. so, so I suppose with industry, is it more political correct professionalism versus, I suppose, academia? I don't want to target any academic institution per se, but worldwide, I, you could suggest that academia does have its circles. It's become like, very much like a bubble. Yeah, it's become uh, an ideological bubble, maybe. It has, but academia mostly has uh, certain politics regarding their research, so they have research focuses and research interests that 
they prefer to focus on that, especially financially, and spend money on that. So researchers who don't fit those interests usually don't get enough room to be innovative. And you have a lot of other administrative things around you or yeah. teaching and things like that. In a lot of universities, we don't have research-only positions. It's mm. mostly teaching or teaching and research. And research usually is up to 20% of your time. Basically, mm. it's nothing. So it takes um, a lot of energy to actually do something innovative and it should be aligned with the strategies of the university. So a lot of times your interests might not be aligned. Mm, so there's a compromise. That's, yeah. that's the issue. I think that in a lot of instances there has to be compromise no matter what it is, even if it is with both academia and private business and of course as, as, as a young researcher you mm. don't usually when your PhD is finished universities don't have any obligations towards hiring you. Exactly. So finding a position, finding a suitable position that you can continue your research is not easy as well. No, of course not. No, that's a big hurdle that not every guest that we would ever have on would even go through that alley. And it's very admirable, very admirable. Um, so tell us how VR reality has come along in the past couple of years. And of course, it, it hasn't been an easy journey. And it's been around for a while, hasn't it? It has been, even in terms of science fiction, it's been around. Uh, when you, if you go, for example, to Google Scholar mm. uh, and search virtual reality uh, in medicine or healthcare, mm -hmm. it goes back to 60s. Mm. And when you go to through the media on what was virtual reality in 60s was basically I always in my workshops compare them to slow, a slow cooker yeah. <laughs> coming down from ceiling, huge headsets sitting on top of your head, uh, usually coming from ceiling because it's very heavy, and in, in certain years and points in, in time, you needed a supercomputer yeah. to run the headset. Yes. That is not viable. A lot of even universities couldn't have it. A lot of companies couldn't afford to have it. And even with a supercomputer, you didn't have enough graphics and the screens were not. So we have the very interesting first era of virtual reality. That's a bit uh, more NASA and very big organizations having them. And then you see it going away, kind of dead, uh, but on the background, different technologies related to it, like the um, graphic processing, screens and things like that, started to advance until we got to the point that we could put it into a laptop or a gaming PC. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was early 2012 that the very first development kit from Oculus came came out and that was mostly I would refer to it as a development slash research device not a consumer device mm -hmm. and took almost four years to early 2016 fast forward to 2016 when different technologies came first we are talking about 
more mobile version of virtual reality, like cardboard, cardboard, cardboard versions of yeah. Google, uh, and Gear VR from Samsung, um, which basically you put your own mobile phone in there. Was it an amazing experience? No, it wasn't, because your mobile phone back then was not good enough. Um, still, it's challenging and then very fast, suddenly we moved forward in different generations of virtual reality headsets from the next generation of, of Oculus Rift coming out and then HTC Vive came out and then a lot of other smaller companies started to grow, uh, different brands started showing up. Um, the gaming industry started picking up on that and very fast next generation of headsets came and now we are at the time with what we call a standalone headsets which you don't need a big computer to run it, it runs on its own, very accessible, you can buy um, an Oculus Quest for 750 Australian dollars which is very affordable. Um, and it has a very decent, good quality games on it as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's been a very fast journey since 2016, I would say, to now especially. That's it's it. Very Larry himself has been studying a bit about the uh, environmental design, right? Yeah. And I just wanted you and Ali to just make a brief comment on, the, I suppose, the VR simulation creative process. Yeah. In that, what's that like? Is it, is it binary? Am I looking at a computer all day? What am I doing? It is basically using the correct kind of software programs to achieve your environment from my perspective at the very least. It's using AutoCAD potentially as a building layout, build, building it up and changing it to three dimensions, then from those three dimensions uh, transporting it, texturing it, materials and UVs and what have you, and then putting it into a simulation program which could be in this instance perhaps Unreal might be the best choice and then from Unreal creating a simulation that would be used in a VR-like uh, construction. Possibly oh, even okay. just, is, is, is it right? <laughs> I'm waiting for you to interject and be like, no, that's yes. wrong. No, 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 it's not wrong. It's not wrong in a sense, but it's more to it, I would say. Oh, okay. uh, that was the architect side of it. And that's uh, in architecture, yes, so exactly. let's give Larry's so, credit. Uh, if you are in architecture, that is exactly the process. You can even put in some 3D Max into yeah, it and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but um, on a software level, uh, basically, you have a team of graphic designer, sure. uh, graphic designers working together to create the graphics, the 3D graphics that you need. It can be the environment, the characters, and also um, different aspects of reality put into it, like light and sound engineering, yeah. all those aspects mm -hmm. of an immersive experience. Yeah. Uh, then you have the next level is the virtual reality development softwares, you can go with Unreal, as mentioned, is one of the uh, engines. Also, Unity is a very famous engine. Yeah. Uh, and then you have in-house uh, virtual reality development engines that basically, they took an open source game engine and turned it into something yeah. to develop virtual reality. Well, I'm glad you guys are here, because I'm the chimp in the conversation. <laughs> I'm the chimp. <laughs> So when it comes to the scientific method, 
bring it back to your research science experience, Ali. What exactly is the method? So the scientific method, as I understand it, is presuming that your argument or hypothesis needs to be proven correct. In that, until you're proven correct with a massive data set that says what you're observing is right, then you should not assert that it is a credible theorem. Um, well, um, it depends on the use. Okay. Uh, so, for example, going back to our our own field, which is healthcare and medicine, no. um, something to which is very interesting for a medical device, it takes a very long time, sometimes one or two decades, to get an approval for a medical device or a medicine. So, yeah. which is not realistic when it comes to a technology like virtual reality, which in two years fast yeah. moved very, very fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but and the other. Other issue would be um, the data set, how big the data set yeah. can be. So not, not every trial and every clinical trial specifically uh, uses millions of data uh, points. Uh, sometimes you are very limited, sometimes the design of your study doesn't require a very big or very huge population. Um, but with a realistic, uh, as long as the population um, with a good level of accuracy uh, simulates the reality, uh, you, you, I would say you're safe to move forward to other phases. Yes, yeah, so it comes down to, as well, just coming on what you just said then, the research scientists and their ability to acquire resources which help them gather the data. Yes. And if they don't that have that, then they have to substantiate and find, I suppose, an adequate data set which represents a portion of what's well, going on. Well, there are a lot of other things into it before you even get there. Oh, okay. So yep. basically, um, if you're in academia, yep. um, and sometimes it's unfortunate, some, maybe I'm a little bit too harsh against the academic way of conducting research, yep. but it's mostly if you are, a, for example, a master's degree, honors degree, or a PhD, they ask you to go to the library, read the literature, find a gap in the literature, and turn that into your question. Okay. Right. Is that realistic? Yeah, that's how it's been done, but most of the time that won't translate into anything beneficial for the community, mm. especially when you're talking about health, for example. Yes, or it's in, in retrospect, right? Because the literature's already been written, right? Basically, exactly. Yeah. And okay. uh, yes, sometimes it depends on the literature that you're going to. So if it was based on a, for example, if it was based on a study done on cancer. Sure. Yeah, definitely, if there, you see a room for improvement, that is a practical research. But sometimes it stays in form of a dissertation and also some paper published, and that's it. It never translates. Mm. And now you hear a lot about translational research, meaning that it won't be just theory, but also translates into a practical solution or a product that you can use. And I think that's where we are moving towards now. Uh, and you will see a lot of funding put into translational research. How we do in wise realities basically is we have a very strong communi 
communication channel with the community. So we go to the community, we, we take the technology there, we show them what's the technology, and each community has their own specific problems. We bring those problems and those suggestions and ideas to our research team. Mm -hmm. We discuss it with collaborators from academia, we discuss it with health professionals from hospitals and other research institutions uh, to see if that's uh, a potential project. But that won't stop there because it might be a serious problem, but it's not something that you can actually translate into a practical product with virtual reality mm -hmm. or any other immersive technology like augmented reality or other battles for the Exactly. Yeah. So you choose the problems that can you see it might have the potential. Sure. Then you start designing your research like any other research project, which in health you need different phases of clinical study. You usually go through iterations of research and development of concepts, prove your concept, then go a little bit further, get feedback on your design, and then that's when we go back to the data. In the very first stage or the phase of your clinical trials, you have a very small group of people to test it. Yeah. And you keep going back and forth until you have fairly stable product and now you go to a bigger population. Yeah, I see that. And then you accordingly you apply the improvements and you go bigger and bigger. Yeah. And from a certain point when you show the um, effectiveness of the solution for that problem and showing that actually it solves and it's positive, then you take it to the next level of um, gathering more data basically. Yeah. That's when most of organizations reach out to multi-site clinical trials, meaning that you send your research to other countries and other research organizations in other states, so you, you gather as much data that you can. Something interesting is one of the examples of how it's different from the previous traditional way of doing research. There, for example, right now there is an app for Alzheimer's disease, a virtual reality app that every five minutes that someone plays with this app, it gathers equal to two hours of face-to-face -face data gathering with patients for the researchers. Mm -hmm. And so far, millions of people played the game. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge data set gathered from all over the world. Not all of them are um, Alzheimer patients, yeah. but there might be close, there might be far into it, or they might be completely healthy, but it gathers a lot of data points by just yeah. playing one game. Larry, it almost sounds, when, when Ali was just saying that now, it sounds as though the way in which uh, wise reality operates is going to the community, mm -hmm. collecting these problems, yeah. and then very pragmatically, and like you said, making sure that it applies to the community, you are slowly but surely 
broadening the impact that you'll have in your non-profit in the exactly. future. Exactly. Yeah, so, no, it's, it's almost like a meritocracy, isn't it? It is meritocratic, but of course it's more or less playing to the community's strength or their particular perceived problems than grabbing a particular, I suppose you'd call them a tester group, letting the tester group come up with, oh, this could potentially work, then fleshing it out further from concept, design, polish up possible designs, yes. making sure there's any issues getting solved out, and then giving it to the general public and seeing how it floats and then helping potentially to cure these kinds of problems, like assessing, you know, when somebody will uh, be susceptible to Alzheimer's, which I imagine would be the case of the, of the purpose of the game, which would be to gather as much data on people who might develop Alzheimer's, see if there's any interlinking cause, and then fulfilling yeah. that sort of uh, theory. That's it. Ali, I remember seeing something on Wise Reality's website. You were talking about brain plasticity. Now, I know a little bit, but in all honesty, I'm not a neurologist. Can you please educate me? Well, I'm, I'm immersive technologist. Right, right, right. Sorry, <laughs> I, I should rephrase that. How do you understand brain plasticity? Um, well, uh, my understanding is fairly basic, and as okay. you can find over internet or with reading a sure. number of um, basically is that um, before um, our understanding was that brain is an organ developed, that's it, you get it as it is when you were a kid, you grow with it, the size might grow, and then that's it, you, you die basically. Uh, over time you lose some of your brain cells, you gain some, um, the more you are active, more engages the yeah. brain activities, that was it. But then we realized that, oh no, when you start training your brain, it actually creates new neural pathways. Yeah, and that's the exciting part about it. Yeah. And then it came into neuroscience, uh, the idea that, oh, if it happens like that, if something happens, for example, to the part X of the brain, um, which is in charge of certain function. If that is for for an accident or stroke or whatever reason, that's not functioning correctly anymore. Can we go around it? Can we kind of create new pathways in the brain to overcome that problem? And then that's the idea of plasticity is that not only the, uh, the healthy brain but also an unhealthy, yeah. unhealthy brain can uh, create new pathways and actually regain some of the functionality or not. When it comes to immersive technologies, that is very important because... Yeah, you're good. I, the mental health that you're focusing exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, well, basically, the whole idea of immersion goes back to your brain and how your brain is kind of fooled into uh, believing that this this matrix world is real. Mm. Uh, oh, this simulation is yeah. real. Yeah. Uh, if you look into game studies, yeah. the very first stage of immersion is basically almost no immersion is when you are playing around with your gamepad yeah. and you're learning the environment, you're, you're getting used to the half a kilo headset on your head or your game console and how it works and everything. So that is the lowest level. And then you get engaged more and after half an hour that you're playing, 
you don't really realize the gamepad. Uh, you don't realize you are not in real environment. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of uh, people trying my HTC Vive, oh. and if you look at the controllers, there are a lot of dents on it because they didn't realize there was a controller in their hand, and they throw it as they've been throwing a ball or something. Oh, yeah. Experience. So, so fold into this exactly, reality simulation. Engaged wow. in there, and then it comes to the full immersion, which we call it presence, and that is when the whole reality is changed into your simulation, mm -hmm. and you don't realize anymore. So if if they shoot you, you feel like you've been shot. Yeah. You won't feel the pain like in movies, but yeah. you you recoil, you you react mm -hmm. to whatever happens in there. And that's when the deepest effect is in there. That's when you gain empathy, if the simulation is for empathy. Mm, that's yeah, when yeah. you start uh, learning new skills, when you repeat yourself. And that all goes back how your brain reacts to those experiences and how it works. And now if you go to an example done in one of the research uh, in UK, if I remember correctly, what they've done was they created a mirror virtual reality of the person. So you had a mannequin here, mm -hmm. you had the user here with virtual reality uh, on their head, and there was a kind of front downward viewing camera on the mannequin. Mm -hmm. And they've been stabbing the mannequin, mm -hmm. and the person, because that was mirrored to the, the avatar of the, of the yeah. person, they would react to it, yeah. that says that your brain doesn't really realize that you're not getting stabbed. Yeah. Uh, so that is, that is a very small example of how you can retrain your brain. For example, if you are a burn victim mm -hmm. and you cannot move your arm because your brain says, oh, if you move it hurts, yeah. so i rather not move in it into, oh, this is a healthy hand, so mm. you, you start trying to move. Sometimes even you can see like, a, for example, in rehabilitation for movement, sometimes they put your injured hand in a position that you won't see it, and they put a mirror in front yeah, of your organs. Over time, your brain sees the mirror picture, which means your, for example, left hand. So when the right hand moves, the left hand over time starts to reacting. So imagine something like that in an immersive environment, that you can add more than just an image. And you can have more um, aspects of reality embedded in so, Larry, we've mentioned uh, depression uh, in the past mm -hmm. on the podcast. When it comes to chronic depression or any kind of form of mental health, how might, because we were just focusing on the fact that someone's been severely burnt and they don't feel as though they can move their arm, what about someone that feels as though they can't escape that chronic depression? Would, yeah. How would that simulation look? So, uh, let me go a little bit broader, because sure, sure. depression is not my special thing, but I can shed light on the field itself. Yeah, so, right now we are using virtual reality in different aspects of mental health. Um, one of the fields that really was very positive was phobias. Yeah, uh, yeah. And how you 
expose the patient in what they're afraid of yeah. because in so many cases in reality, for example, you, uh, are, you want to expose them to a snake. You, you, you can't exactly can. put a snake in or front of them. Or a red bag or yeah. something like that. <laughs> uh, or you can push them off a building or something. <laughs> yeah, ethics yeah. very early on catch up with you. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's an amazing... Uh, and it all goes back to a safe place, creating mm. a self, safe place for the patient. Mm. Uh, then you can go even into psychosis. Sure. Um, you can go into anxiety, relaxation, mm. dealing with anxiety, dealing with social anxiety, dealing with uh, interactions and communication. Yes, yeah, so a, a base step, going from phobias and then working your way progressively exactly. through the different people. And then it, go, it goes to mood improvement, okay. and this is where we are kind of entering the uh, arena when it comes to depression, is that uh, first of all, uh, you need you need to know that virtual reality is not the only solution. So you need to use it as an add-on. Mm -hmm. So you went through the therapy and you know the reason for the depression. You know all the aspects of it. So yeah. you can now introduce aspects of a simulated safe space that the person can actually. Uh, interact and mm. start breaking the mold and start mm. to mm. gaining new skills. Mm -hmm. It yeah. can be communication, it can be uh, feeling safety, it can be not feeling to be judged, things yeah. like that. And over time, you overcome your exactly. thing. And then PTSD is one of the biggest yeah. ones, especially now that unfortunately the world is engaged in a lot of unnecessary wars mm -hmm. a lot of young people coming back to their home countries with a lot of mental PTSD. issues yeah. uh, especially PTSD mm -hmm. that there is a big body of knowledge right now around virtual reality especially in UK around virtual reality and how it helps to overcome PTSD yeah that's it when it comes to when you touched on that it's I like the fact that you pointed out that it's complementary in that no one should pretty much depend on the reality. Because I can imagine a corporate executive getting really depressed yeah. and they just walk away from a corporate meeting, put his headset on and just go somewhere else. But where's where's the executive guy? Where's the CEO? Oh, he's, he's, just, in the pod. He's, just, yeah. he's just in his pod. Yeah. But that's that's very good though, because in certain environments within wise realities, and I suppose there could be like, uh, a psychology aspect that this could be practical towards also. Yes. Yeah, so I, I like the idea that it's complementary. And like you said, there are other elements that a person can use to build their own mental resilience and get it back to an, a normal, healthy pattern of thinking. And um, also, it needs a lot of research and expertise in the field to be put into developing that content. Something that I'm very afraid of is that because this is a very hyped technology, a lot of companies um, coming at it as let's develop something and then we try to um, test it, which is not good. I think it's very important to go through research uh, steps and uh, research phases and collaborate with research organizations from early on of developing your idea and turning it into a product and a content and 
then commercializing it. And mm -hmm. that's something that we try to do in Wise Realities is to become the technology partner with the startup community to support them with their research, bring in the community, and bring in the clinical trial specialists, bring in the academia researchers to help the com commercial and for-profit sector yeah. to actually build applications that are uh, based on science and based on clinical studies and trials. So, first of all, you don't have any adverse effects when it goes to patients, and also it can be trusted by doctors and health professionals and patients. Mm. Yeah, actually, that's so, fascinating. So. That brings us to a question that I have is, where do you, you see WISE technologies, just how do you see them expanding in the next 10 years, 20 years? Uh, um, well, we have a lot of challenges as uh, a charity to overcome. Uh, one of the very first challenges is uh, money, as every other uh, segment. Um, but our challenge is almost unique because well, at least to start, we rely on donations, we rely on philanthropic donations, corporate donations, um, we rely on government support and fundings and research grants, which it's a little bit tricky because we are a very new organization, so we don't have a track record to show for the government grants. So this is where philanthropy comes to our aid. Unfortunately, the current culture around philanthropy is more on pharmaceuticals and genetics and other aspects of health rather than the technology itself. Mm. And that is the culture that needs to be changed. Mm. And we need to show the philanthropist and to the public that you can actually donate to technology companies like Wise Realities that invests in its um, time and energy into technology as a therapeutic use, mm -hmm. as a health promotion tool, mm -hmm. as an educational tool to yeah. improve health overall in the country and globally. Yeah, this is a part of the challenge, I suppose, <coughs> with the modern day, we've got tech elites, you know, misbehaving, doing things that people are uneasy about. Mm -hmm. That's probably where you come in and trying to break through that preconceived notion which is false in that what you're doing is from the sounds of it is a very positive aspect to application of virtual reality technology mm -hmm. i do respect the way in which you're approaching it yeah it's very 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 admirable because i mean i don't know i look at zuckerberg he just looks like he wants to eat data <laughs> that's, that's, that's the it. thing that's the, the thing is uh, and one of the uh, main reasons that I founded Wise Realities as a not-for-profit and as a research institute. And I remember when, when I first wanted to do it, a lot of people were very negative about it, that you never would do this, you, you can't do it, you never will be recognized doing it. And here I am, after two years, uh, leading my field in WA towards a better understanding of research-based and research-led and community-led practice towards development is that as a not-for-profit, as a charity, um, we, we are more engaged with community and with the uh, 
innovation for good, which is one of our campaigns, rather than the financial and commercial profit of the project. Yeah. And it makes it much easier for us to create a platform to collaborate, actually. Um, as a not-for-profit, as an independent charity, which um, can perform as a link, we can bring, we have this opportunity to bring the government in, we can bring the community in, we can also bring the academia in, and also bring our colleagues from the industry in, to work together, to put aside all the politics, so there is when it comes to wise realities there is no competition there is no fight over IP or copyright there is no fight about oh, the money yeah. everything with a good model mm -hmm. everything is kind of balanced to all the stakeholders mm -hmm. and then it creates a platform that our younger generation of researchers and developers can actually be innovative without concerning themselves with all that and actually can contribute more and we can support our economy, you can create more jobs, we can create more research that needs to be commercialized so the startup community grows. At the same time, we provide more research opportunities for the um, universities, uh, graduates, the younger researchers to do innovation and also we become a point of contact for the community to um, enable them to have a voice in it and also the government to learn from all these people that what they can do to support this mm. and I think that if that is realized, hopefully when that is realized in future, that creates a very good ecosystem mm -hmm. that is progressive, innovative, also very supportive mm -hmm. at the same time. I'm glad we've got a, a very good leader at the helm and I just want to draw on that, the fact that you yourself seem to display, display strong leadership qualities and the other thing I noticed is you do have a doctorate in philosophy. Yeah. Now I find any great thinker or any great leader has this ability to kind of you know turn a phrase to make people think. think so. Larry likes to do it. I think I'm, so. I'm I sure. think Ali's been doing it all night. Man. And I just want to make everyone aware that we're we're into the more free thinking, free exchanging part of the conversation. We're we're done with the Q and A. Mm -hmm. But to you, how can you? I suppose, how do you define philosophy? Because it's very nuanced, right? Um. Well, uh, philosophy. It can be simplified as how one person sees the world. Yeah. So um, different. One thing that I've learned through um, working with, um, and I'm not a philosopher. Um, yeah. I've done a PhD, which we call a doctorate in philosophy. But oh. basically, that's that's a general term for. Um, a doctorate into any sphere. Oh yes, yes. No, I do um, recall this. Any GP that I've ever met has got that. But there yeah. are differences. I apologize for the Doctor of the philosophy, <laughs> yes, yeah, Doctor yeah. of Philosophy and Doctorate in Philosophy. Uh, okay. There are two different things. But you get philosophical in that sense that there is very specific aspects that you look into and you see the problem and the world yeah. which is connected to this problem 
differently. And um, uh, I had the opportunity, and I still have the opportunity to serve the autism community mm -hmm. as a researcher and engaging with kids with autism. And one thing that I've learned is, I think the autism community is the best way to talk about philosophy because mm -hmm. each of these kids are unique oh, yeah. and they have their unique view of the world, the world. Yeah. and that is I think it can expand to the whole humanity as how you see it, how you see your role in it and how you see you can communicate your understanding of your world to others and hopefully collectively improve the humanity and collectively improve the quality of life uh, or at least stop what we're doing right now to the yeah. world <laughs> yeah. uh, in base yeah. case scenario yeah well, it was some sort of Immanuel Kant you the greatest group for the greatest collective achievement yeah. yeah very much the case so Ali you've been working with the autistic community for some time I imagine yes um, um, autism was basically my motivation to start Blind's Reality. Mm. So, yeah. mm. so you've also presented the idea that um, uh, philosophy can be based around seeing the world from a different perspective. And of course, autistic people, and particularly autistic children, have a very unique um, way of viewing the world. I think it's also very interesting how you work with virtual reality so frequently, where it is the presentation of such a unique perspective of a world or a visual medium. Um, is there such an idea that we could get that, uh, we could learn so much more from uh, the autistic community and just autistic peoples in general from uh, presenting perhaps more interesting visuals, more interesting ideas? Almost in relation to, I suppose, human acceptance and yeah. understanding in a way? Um, I would say definitely because um, Autism is very, and, and my understanding of autism is on student levels, you know, right. I'm, I'm learning, but um, I, I refer to a comedian experience, um, you might have heard Amy Schumer, no. um, very vocal um, no, yeah. comedian, interesting yeah. comedian, very interesting. Um, she She's now married with the children, uh, with a kid just born, I think, a few months ago. And uh, if you go to Netflix and see her latest um, comedy special, yeah. um, she's talking about when they realized that her husband uh, is actually on a spectrum. Oh, okay. And he's autistic. And she goes to the... Uh, to the session with uh, her husband when they've been trying to do the tests and figure out where on the spectrum he is and everything and she realizes that all the aspects of his character that she fell in love are caused by autism. <laughs> And they are there because he is autistic. Yeah. Right, right. That's very true. Mm. When you work with these kids and adults, um, yeah. it's very easy to fall in love with them mm. because they're they're very blunt. They are very uh, in 
most cases they are very straightforward. Mm -hmm. They just they don't have any filter. They just give it to you oh, as it is. God, Larry, I might have autism. You might. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of us are somewhere on the I don't believe in what we call neurotypical sure. anymore. Sure. Uh, because we used to say he's odd. Uh, and I'm putting, <laughs> I'm putting it in very polite way. Understanding was very different. Even now, the public understanding of autism is yeah. still still not very. It's advanced. not. It's not a one size fits all label. That's what we're but trying it's, to. But it's amazing how they look at the world, and I think that that translates into how philosophy can learn from that, and how we can learn from them. Is that you don't really need to uh, tell lies. You don't really need to go around. You can just you can it's refreshing. Uh, you can too. actually when you care for someone you can easily tell them, not being afraid of talking about your feelings. Um, and at the end of the day it's very challenging for all of us to communicate and mm. socialize, even those who are always in the center of every social uh, event, they have their own uh, challenges in the background, they just mask it better than the others. They have their own insecurities, they have their own image to keep. Mm. But when you look at it, it's the same. Some, mm. some people have challenges, some people have different challenges, of course. But yeah, definitely it's something to So there are always different challenges and different problems being met with uh, VR especially now. Uh, we talk about health all the time, we're talking about different kinds of health, different kinds of uh, needs and wants, and of course we're all human beings. Uh, so I guess this brings us to the more um, unusual side of what VR can do, and what VR is doing sort of thing. So. Uh, sexual health when it comes to VR. Oh, I thought we were about to, about to talk about a dystopian future, but no, let's, no, let's no, get no, into no, sexual health With the first small smile, I could say where it is going. Um, uh, sexual health is very interesting. Um, for some reason, well, sexuality is. I, I would say sexuality is the very first natural sense when it comes to humans mm. and animals and almost any creature. Very prime. The, at the very first moment you're born, you need skin-to-skin -skin contact. Yeah. Uh, it's not sexual, but it, it develops and it grows into a sexual being. Yeah. And um, for some reason, our time from uh, religion to government to uh, norms and uh, so society, we created taboos and we created norms and conformity. Every yeah. day we limited it, and unfortunately, we were always afraid of those who are different from us, uh, from the transgender community, which is still unfortunately a problem to different sexual interests, to 
variety of sexual acts and uh, everything around it. Mm. Um, when you push all this away and try to mask it and hide it and push it into the closet mm. and go towards the uh, more conservative side of the society, the very first thing that comes through is sexual health. Mm. Or better to say, unhealthy sexual relationships. Mm. Sure. That's when it results into rape on the worst side of it, that when it results into sexual diseases, uh, when it comes to unwelcome sexual acts, mm. harassments, bullying, um, even not knowing what you do. Uh, which is still, if you go to our school system, the sexual health and sexual education is quite conservative and old. Mm. Yeah. compared to a lot of European countries, yeah. let's say. And then a virtual reality comes in, because virtual reality is uh, it's meant to be immersive, yeah. it's meant to get closer to reality mm. with, um, with this freedom of creating alternate uh, environments and realities that there might be different from what you see around you, then there is cautionary feeling around it. Oh, can we let it in? And then, like any other technology which was interesting, uh, it will be picked up by the porn industry, which attaches another stigma to it. So, um, in 2015 or 16, when we proposed uh, projects around sexual uh, health and sexology in virtual reality, uh, we actually proposed that it's better to coin the term virtual sexology, uh, and it was ignored and rejected by certain uh, communities. Yeah. And then a year later, it turned into a porn category. Mm. And now you can look yeah. for it. And that's the stigma that kind of creates a barrier for us to actually go in. I was just going to make a quick comment on that because when it comes down to it, VR in a positive sexuality aspect could be used to therapeutically get people through traumatic experiences that they've yeah. had that have been unhealthy in terms of sexual health. Mm. Rape, naming one, you know, molestation, whatever, all of it. So, I do feel that there is a socially acceptable VR, uh, I suppose, practical application mm. towards resolving specific things within sexuality. Although, uh, yeah, I don't know. Because about um, lack of sexual health, particularly for those people who might be far away from their loved ones or their, the people they're married to. Or that is one. Uh, other things is something that uh, I didn't even know was that... Uh, a lot of people with disabilities in schools do not get sexual health courses mm. because wrongly they are assumed not having ex any sexual needs mm. yeah. uh, or rural areas mm. or any, any other area. One thing that comes to sexual health but we need to be very careful is that um, 
the aspect of ethics to it. Mm. Because uh, when it comes to sexual act, it's very, you know, it can be graphic, considered yeah. graphic. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it, if it's honest, it's, you know, you, you will see sexual acts and you will see sexual depends on how we do it I guess. Uh, yeah and <laughs> be honest if you want if if we wanted to stay on a, a using um let's say a fruits as a prop sure um, sure well, we stay that way. You don't need technology anymore. No, you know. No. So if you're moving towards more realism, but yeah, okay. uh, in a safe environment, okay. one thing that is very, very important to keep in mind is that the closer you get to the um, realism and the closer you get to realistic scenarios, uh, especially with research and studies into harassment, rape, bullying, no. and things like that, then it gets, very soon it gets very real, the experience, and you might actually cause similar harms without the person being harassed or raped in real life. Now that brings us to so an you will get yeah. the PTSD and all yeah. other issues like, around it. That's, that is when the psychologists should contribute, then the sexologists should contribute, other research areas should contribute, and ethics of medicine and practices yeah. and research should contribute to make sure that it's the scenario is developed in a sense that it won't cause any sort of psychological any sort of exactly. problems. Uh, it's interesting. Do we with VR getting better and better in terms of its graphics, in terms of its usage, it's being more viable than it ever has been. Uh, do we worry about people, this is a, again more of a science fiction type scenario. We're speculating. We're being very speculative, of course, but does it come down to, well, people might enjoy the virtual reality more than the yeah. actual reality? Yeah, it comes down to what is reality in general, right? True. And if well, you rely on VR, let me put it in a very simple way. Mm. Uh, right now, a lot of people, and you will see documentary about it, that they marry a doll, a sex doll, mm -hmm. which is basically plastic. Sure. Um, if you can relate to that being, definitely virtual reality is yeah. another one. Mm -hmm. If yeah. you watch the series Black Mirror yeah. on Netflix, there are a lot of those uh, episodes on virtual reality or deep, I would call them deep virtual reality experiences, which involve in sexual uh, acts. Mm. Uh, so um, one way or another we get there because uh, even with virtual um, worlds that came in 2002, I think at least Second Life was one of the mm. famous ones that came out in 2002. Uh, after a while, that got better qualities and around mid, I think around 2006, 2007, mm. the graphics were much better. Uh, the very first thing that you see is that um, building new environments within the realm of Second Life, which is specifically for uh, sexual interactions. 
Um, and then you even see like um, different characters, different places specifically for those acts and things like that. And it's very logical conclusion that that would translate into virtual reality. Um, you have now Steam VR, which is a mark, big market now um, allows adult content to be yeah. included in Steam VR. So we are getting there, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, how close it gets to a sexual act that is satisfying enough for some people mm. to actually replace it, uh, we have to wait and see how I hope it never gets to that point for me. Well, we were talking earlier about the hypothetical scenario of Pat being a lonely FIFO worker who's out in the middle yeah. of nowhere sort sure. of thing. Uh, even other, if you look into other countries, there are a lot of countries which are very advanced in technology mm. and you can see that the intimacy in their culture is kind of dying mm. and the sexual act is not very interesting to the new generations, to mm. young people. Most of them prefer not to have uh, sexual partners because it's just too much waste of energy for them. What a time to be alive. You have people that never been hugged, never been kissed in their 30s, yeah. in their 20s, and sexuality becomes irrelevant. Um, if they want, they go to certain services which is more on robotics I was, I was and dolls. Say, not and e not even like on that. I heard of a friend, through a friend, there is a girl out there, and I'm not going to name her, I don't even know her name actually, so it doesn't matter. But she is offering a business service for free hugs. She's literally collecting money from guys that just want hugs, paying for an hour and, and earning about two hundred dollars. So off. intimacy. Wow. Intimacy is a very important issue when it comes to psychology, it comes to sexology, and it comes to a lot of other things. The yeah. lack of intimacy, what it can translate into when you grow up and in your family doesn't have the strangeness between the family member, yeah. uh, family members, uh, how you mature in your characters and how you build relationships mm. with lacking proper intimate relationships previously. Mm. Uh, these are all related. Uh, sexuality is just one small aspect of it. Yeah. One fraction of it is mm. sexuality. Intimacy goes much deeper than just sexual relationships. So that is definitely something that technology will affect in future. One of the key aspects of any sort of sexuality and possibly something that we can talk about uh, from a more psychological standpoint is those people who would, uh, I would say, more sexually frustrated than the average person, let's say. And then, of course, they have a psychosis, they're um, psychopathic. In Christian Bale, an American psycho, is yeah. probably the perfect example um, of that, I guess. We, yeah. Could we theoretically think of VR as a good way to perhaps train these people to be more empathetic and perhaps reduce um, their... Interestingly, I had, uh, I had the same conversation with a psychologist and a researcher, a professor from one of WA universities around this because we've been looking into if that can be actually a case for replacing virtual reality with reality for mm. these people to satisfy their needs there. Mm. And we basically concluded that 
you might actually contribute to this factor because there might get more exposure mm. uh, and from certain point it's not enough and then they act. Mm. I just, uh, uh, I'm talking about the uh, reformation process, say for example, somebody theoretically see a, uh, a VR process that tries to teach them empathy, that tells them, you know, more or less what they have done in, in the wrong. No, they empathy, empathy, empathy it, okay, these are two different things. Mm. Empathy is definitely it's a goal. It's, mm. it's an amazing tool for teaching empathy, mm. but to replace their urges and their needs mm. with virtual reality, um, at least from the expert's opinion, that I am not expert on that matter, is that it's very risky. Mm. Uh, game to enter because it can have uh, other aspects yeah. into it. I just want to bring back to when you were saying that it might not be applicable for people that, you know, the, the novel Christian Bale, American Psycho person mm. that's put into a VR simulation in order to cathartically resolve whatever issues, yeah. dark issues that they've got in the dark triad of psychology in their mind. When it comes to this, um, I'm curious, and the only thing, this is the only stage of the conversation where I'm going to slightly disagree, only slightly, in that video game players that, you know, shoot a lot of people uh, in video games, technically speaking, don't always convert that to violence in the real world. No. Now, is it because the virtual reality simulation is too visceral, as in, like, it's too real, in that I can't make that comparison? Is that... Just um, clarify, correct me if I'm wrong. No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. The thing is, um, with, with psychopathic urges, or um, I don't know what would be the best uh, word for sexual um, desires that don't fit the norms and chronic sex addicts. That's probably uh, the best way of putting it. No, some, no, some people no. might have uh, sexual desires that don't fit the society's oh, norms and understandings. Right, right. So it um, is a deviation, yeah. I, I don't want to label it. them yeah. because I'm not an expert sure. in that matter. Um, the thing is, you might go into a shooting game. Sure. You don't have killing urges. You don't have shooting urges. You like the thrill of the game. Yeah. And because you know when you shoot those people, you're not harming anyone. Yeah. You get engaged deeply and you do it. But when you come out of that, not only you go on a rampage of killing people, you, you, don't, you also release stress. So you are actually more, you might be actually more kind and yeah, empathetic person. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's but, what but when it comes to the psychology side of those who are kind of disconnected from certain realities and they are more deeper into, they don't have any empathy, they cannot have any empathy. Like now they are looking into the, that you, sh you shouldn't, you shouldn't exclude them from society because they naturally cannot develop empathy. They don't, they can't, it's not their choice, they are born that way. They didn't choose like, okay, from now on, I don't care about humans, yeah. I go and kill people. So there is, there is a lot of 
discussions around that as well. Mm -hmm. But that comes to urgence. Yeah. Uh, so that's why most of the research focuses on managing those urges mm -hmm. to correct or control the act mm -hmm. rather than providing something like virtual reality to actually go and engage in those yeah, so, so you don't so if yeah, so okay. if the experience I mean, yeah. helps them to manage the condition mm. yes that is an interesting point of view to yeah. look into if a virtual experience for example imagine someone was um, raped or molested or harassed when they were kids sexually sure. yeah. Uh, or they never had a good relationship with their mother, for example. Sure. Didn't get hugs, didn't get intimacy. Mm. Can we use the technology to kind of overcome just rather than yeah. just talking to them? Yeah. Is there any way that we can create uh, experiences that it can kind of heal them from those early childhood traumas yeah. so it can lead into improving their mood? Yes, definitely mm. there is opportunity to look into it. Mm. Uh, there might be also published research on it that I'm not aware of, mm. but definitely there is opportunity for it. Mm. But uh, I would be very careful around oh, of course. what you provide for... Because again, it all comes back to the ethics of it all. It's like, it does, it does. Yeah. And then there are various individuals within society that have different moralities, and then oh, yeah. moralities mm. for that matter. Anyway, it's been a wonderful time and I've enjoyed talking to you profoundly. Yes. I don't use that word lightly, I really mean that. Um, so where can we find you? Obviously we'll leave the, the website below in the description. Uh, yes, so you can find us basically on most social media. Brilliant. Wise Realities, when you uh, search Wise Realities as one word, basically we are on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook and also um, you can go to our website to read about us. Um, we put um, we are also on LinkedIn, and we put posts around our community programs, our research programs. Uh, time to time, we, we share publications uh, that we see uh, interesting. Um, we also we also put our fundraising and donation information <laughs> yeah, that yeah, uh, we look into it. Um, we also have volunteering and training right. uh, programs to help young, younger, especially students who want to be involved in um, our field to learn through volunteering in our events or in our courses mm -hmm. and basically help them to enter the field. Definitely check it out, guys. Okay, thanks for everyone's time. And uh, you can always make a donation to our Patreon or PayPal. Please do it. Support the channel. Uh, yeah. Creators like us do need money to upscale and better the experience for our listeners and viewers. So thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks. I'd definitely like to get involved more into um, the sort of stuff that you're doing there. Yeah.